Welcome to EDI on BIV, Business in Vancouver's podcast on equity, diversity, and inclusion in BC business. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor of Business in Vancouver, and we're broadcasting today from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Chantelle Krish, CEO of KidSafe and an equity advocate, joins me today as a co-host. Welcome back, Chantelle. Always great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here as always. Now, if you listened to our episode last week with the Honorable Janet Austin, Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, you may have heard us mention research from a local UBC-based nonprofit organization called Blueprint. Like the name suggests, the organization aims to provide men with a blueprint for reshaping their role in families, in communities, and in business. And earlier this year, they published a report on leading in the wake of Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements. Joining us today to discuss this work and research, we have Dr. John Izzo, founder of Blueprint, and Nikki Dollywall, Blueprint's Director of Engagement and Partnerships. Thank you to both of you for coming on our EDI on BIV podcast. A pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Haley and Chantel. Looking forward to our conversation. John, let's uh, jump right to it with you. I'd love to hear about the problem or the issues that you sought to address with the blueprint and why, I guess, creating a blueprint was sort of an answer to addressing those issues. Yeah, so uh, five years ago, myself and two co-founders founded a blueprint at the University of British Columbia, uh, really because of, I guess, two issues. One is we felt like um, two things were true and unaddressed. One is that men were contributing to suffering in meaningful ways. Uh, Men are more likely to uh, commit sexual assault, more likely to do violence, more likely to desert their families, uh, more likely to um, do a lot of things that many of us are concerned about. Uh, And the second thing is that men were also suffering. Uh, Men are more likely to be homeless, more likely to be addicted, more likely to die from suicide, more likely to drop out of school or not graduate from university more likely to have poor relationships with their families. And we felt like um, over the last 30 years, a lot of important work has been done to help uh, women and girls all over the world uh, uh, really develop and have opportunities. But the other half of the species was not being paid attention to in terms of the impact men were having on society. So we really began the organization as the only university-based organization of its kind in the world, dedicated to really thought leadership on masculinity and its impact on society and how we can help men be better for themselves and better for the world. And so that's, that's how it began five years ago. That is so interesting. And it's such a critical part of this conversation that, as you alluded to, can often go unaddressed just because of the harm that's caused and the focus on that, which is very, very important. But um, it's wonderful to see that research is backing up this body of work. Um, Question for you, Nikki, on sort of the behind the scenes at Blueprint. What does Blueprint do? What does it look like sort of as you execute your programs and your research in the community? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, You know, what I find compelling is that Blueprint is advocating for a new way of being. And it's really transformative social change, right, Um, where we connect with and champion a more compassionate and sustainable world. And, And at the core of the work is really cohesion and connectedness. 
And as John mentioned, really what's missing and what we're losing is that sort of loss of cohesion to ourselves, to our families and our communities. And on the ground, that looks like, you know, working with men, we, we obviously do take a gendered approach to our work. And, and that, that means designing inclusive workplaces. That means engaging men in difficult conversations. And that means adapting our existing ways of sort of knowing and, and being and in ways that serve us all equally. Um, and so on the ground, that's the research, you know, that's the programs that you've mentioned. It's really a um, never about you without you approach. We try to understand the root causes, try to speak to the men in these areas, and then use that information to develop models and prove that they work, and then give that away. It really is a matter of getting this back into the hands of the men and the communities that need the most. Yeah, and an example of that, Chantel, is as Nikki alluded to. So we have a program, for example, for young men that we began with university athletes at Stanford and the University of Oregon and West Point and UBC, which we're now transitioning as a program that can be deployed in schools across the country that really help young men think about who they are and who they wanna be and what they learned about being a man and how they may wanna change that story. Uh, we have programs for businesses to help leaders uh, especially men become more inclusive uh, and in, empathic in their own uh, work and leadership. And we've been working with firefighters and police officers, both uh, men and women, uh, because these male dominated cultures really um, need to reimagine a different way of being. So, but as Nikki said, our, we're not in the program business. We create models that work, prove they work, and then we try to give them away and try to deploy them as widely as we possibly can, all with the aim of making men better for themselves and better for others. Uh, and that's our kind of mission. And then research like the one we're going to talk about today around the workplace. Well, that's the perfect lead into this report leading in the wake of Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And I think both of these movements did provide some cohesion. They were really centers around which many people rallied, brought a lot into the light that many people knew to be true, but maybe weren't as broadly recognized, if I can put it that way. But I think the question we, we have to ask is what happens after you have very significant events when years pass, months passed, does the change persist and has there been change? So John, maybe you can talk a bit about some of the highlights of the report and, and answer the question whether we have seen change as a result of these movements. Yeah, so, so we were really interested in the, in the question of just what you said, Haley, how has the workplace changed post Me Too and Black Lives Matter? And not so much like studying the impact of those movements per se, but you know when 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 uh, the Me Too Me Too is older than 2017, but that's when it really first kind of went into the zeitgeist, right? So over the last five years, this almost rolling now uh, you know set of social movements and awareness, as you said, around gender and racial and ethnic equity uh, and justice. How has that changed the workplace, especially in terms of men's attitude and behaviors, though we studied both, and then kind of asked, so what does that say about where we're at? So first, the study was both a quantitative and a qualitative study in the United States and Canada. 
both frontline and leader level people, though our focus groups, the qualitative part was only with C-suite uh, leaders, uh, male and female, all genders, and then a large survey in both countries. Uh, and, and, and by the way, not an online survey, it was a paneled representative survey. So it's not like just whoever wanted to sign up. We wanted to make sure we really were studying, uh, you know, as close to the truth as we could. So here would be the highlights if I were to give some headlines. And I'll speak mostly about Canada since I, this is a Canadian audience. Uh, uh, so first good news is uh, we have seen a lot of progress. Uh, the perception is that these movements have in fact changed attitudes and behaviors, raised awareness, uh, both in the focus groups and the quantitative survey, uh, men and women, all genders said, yes, we have in fact seen changes. Uh, female uh, uh, respondents said, we feel more empowered, uh, more emboldened to speak up, to challenge things that aren't right, uh, to, uh, you know, to really push for equity and inclusion. Uh, both genders said that they have seen changes in men, that men are in fact more aware, uh, more careful about what they're saying and doing. Uh, we also showed that men, uh, uh, male leaders are more likely to mentor and advocate for uh, people of color and for other genders than before these movements. Uh, both uh, men and women, significant difference in terms of their commitment to being allies for less uh, privileged, uh, historically privileged groups. Uh, and uh, so generally, it's a good news picture with some caveats. Uh, one of those caveats is that uh, men don't feel as welcomed in the conversation about equity and inclusion. Uh, there is a feeling of, of cautiousness among men. So they want to change, but they're very nervous about making mistakes, very nervous about a misinterpretation of something that they, they might do. Uh, and uh, we think that's a bit of a concern, you know, because when people aren't in the conversation, they're more likely to kind of check out. The other thing that's interesting is that there was some feeling that some of the misogynistic behavior hasn't gone away as much as gone underground. And one of the things that we explored in our focus group was, you know, how what men felt would need to happen to have a more substantive, deeper change. And we have some thoughts on that perhaps to, to share as we go through our conversation. But the headline is real progress for all genders. And let me quickly say, we tried to study non-gendered groups in terms of, you know, their attitudes, but we couldn't get to a high enough number of respondents to generalize. So we really can only speak about what uh, identified men and identified women you know, had to say. So a good news story, still some progress to go. One more interesting thing, everyone, both males and females, men and women said, we're not there yet. We need to make more progress. So that's a good news story too. There's a strong feeling that we still have a lot of uh, progress to make. By the way, 3% to 5% in Canada had the opposite reaction, feel these movements have created a more toxic workplace where it's more difficult for the genders to get along than before. In the United States, that number is three times that, 13%. That's promising because you hear a lot of response to these movements and sometimes it's negative and very loud, but when you actually 
what you're saying in this quantifiable way is it actually represents a small portion, which is which is good news for sure. Um, on the point around you, you know, one of the points of concern you raised around men still feeling trepidatious to engage in these discussions. Where do you think that's coming from? And how do we overcome that feeling while also recognizing that inviting and being inclusive to men is hard for people that have been represented as marginalized and oppressed groups? So how do we break through that barrier and actually create that kind of inclusion? Yeah, let me say a word about that. And then Nikki, I'm sure will have a, a, a view on it as well. Um, you know, uh, one thing is in our C-suite focus groups, one of the interesting things, many of the female C-suite executives talked about worrying that we create an environment where it's more focused on blame and shame rather than learning. Now, obviously, there are some things that you just need to, you know, and all the executives said, look, if, if you know, sexual assault, you know, uh, you know, unwanted, you know, advances. It's these things we just have to deal with in a very firm way. But then there's all kinds of gray areas, right? You know, that people talked about where it's really about learning a new way of working with each other, right? And so all genders are on a learning curve. And how do we create an environment where we can learn and explore together? You know, uh, one of my favorite stories in the focus groups was an older white man who said he opened the door for a young woman at work and she kind of blasted back at him, I don't need you to open the door for me. Uh, or another story where a CEO said a woman came to, to her and said, uh, you know, a, 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 a coworker touched a female's shoulder in a meeting and I'm uncomfortable with that. And when the female CEO went to that woman, she said, oh, like we're pals, we're friends. It didn't bother me. And they talked about how just creating an environment where we can talk about what's happening instead of immediately going to judgment and being in a place of learning. How do we kind of learn from each other about what we, what we need and what's acceptable and isn't? So the point is, like, how do we create that kind of growth environment instead of immediately going to, you know, the place where then men shut down? Well, I just don't want to you know, deal with it. And I don't think that's what we want. And that's what many of the female executives said. Nikki, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, you know, the thing that I hear is how do we create intentionally design inclusive workplaces? And maybe that's a matter of sort of leveling the playing field to some extent. Um, you know, how do we create spaces where we can share conflicting information, like what John is saying? Um, and often when we do that, that's done in a way where uh, it raises animosity. So how do we remove that? How do we intentionally work to sort of you know, reduce animosity? How do we work to strive and uh, equally make it safe for everyone to share their voice, regardless of whether you're majority or minority, seniority or, or, or not? And one of the ways that, for example, it, you know, Blueprint does this is in every meeting, we'll have a check-in and a check-out. And everyone will share what's going on in their lives and their relationships. And when your leadership, for example, comes in and, and might show up with some vulnerability there, uh, it opens a space for everyone else to also do the same. So it just creates that, that intentional space. And, and it's maybe like a 10-minute start to your, to your meeting, but it just sets the 
tone for how you might engage and opens a space for some dialogue that might not be there on topics that you wouldn't traditionally think would come up in workplaces. And I think that's especially important now, and maybe hopefully that'll change with uh, the pandemic shifting, but as we're more and more remote and trying to build relationships and a sense of belonging, where you can raise the things that are are meaningful to you on issues of inclusion or your relationships or any workplace conflicts and and really talk about what that means for you. And that's true, I think, for any gender or race. I think that's a really key point. And I've seen it in my workplaces. You hear about it, that we're having conversations that just weren't taking place or may have been considered, quote unquote, unprofessional to have, that you're somehow supposed to separate out your personal life and many segments of who you are and just bring this, this created professional self to work. And, and Nikki, I, I want to follow up on something you said, and John, feel free to jump in after, but how have leadership styles changed overall? And how has what we need from our workplace leaders actually changed? Yeah, great question. So John sort of touched on this a little bit. And, um, you know, I think one of the important points is that there is greater awareness amongst leaders for the need for equity and inclusion. And when we think about sort of this journey of, you know, awareness to action, that's step one. So that that increase in awareness, like, do we need this? Why is inclusion important? I mean, we can read all the stats on it uh, that we want to, but Really, it's a matter of, we know that data says, you know, um, homogeneous teams might outperform heterogeneous teams unless there's a sense of belonging, um, safety, trust. And that's something that we're seeing leaders step up to do. So that's sort of the one, one overall layer. The other is that the change is also seen in how leaders are perceived. So one of the questions we ask is, how are male and female leaders, men and women, seen as leaders? And what really stood out is women are seen, uh, the change in how women are seen as leaders. And historically, women are seen as less strategic and visionary And now that's changed, right? John mentioned that women are more empowered to speak out. But the other point of that is that they're seen as more charismatic, as more visionary, strategic, and assertive, and um, to the same level of men. And on top of that, they're also seen as more empathic and inclusive. And I think there's two things to note here, right? One is this perception, um, you know, that we're moving away from traditional stereotypes, you know, the the assertive female leader is seen as more aggressive. And I think that's changing. And I think that's promising. And the other is this overall understanding of what it means to be a good leader. Empathy and inclusion are necessary parts of the new playbook. And I think the the way that leaders are stepping up and changing, I do believe that, and this, this research sort of shows this, is that since the rise of these social movements that's come to the forefront has brought awareness to it. And so how are leaders and organizations actually stepping in to create change since they've raised that awareness? And and I think the way that leadership is changing is sort of instrumental to that. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a great answer. And it's a good segue into the next question, which is, you know, and John, I'll direct this one to you first. There are a lot of issues vying for our attention and your research really 
dug into some critical ones. Um, Do you expect equity, diversity, inclusion, belonging to remain top of mind? Or is it it really incumbent on the leaders to ensure that EDI remains at the top of the agenda in the spaces that they occupy? So, so, Chantal, thank you. Before I answer, I just want to say a word about what Nikki said is that I think it really is very cool and hopeful as someone who's worked with leaders for 30 years, you know, that now female leaders are seen at the same level on these core qualities like charisma and being strategic and visionary, and also seen as more inclusive and collaborative. Now, in fairness, men, male leaders are perceived as being slightly more inclusive and empathic than they were before, but not at the level of female leaders. So one of the challenges for male leaders, if they want to be successful uh, and effective, is to grow their ability to be empathic and inclusive. And a lot of our work focuses on that. And the programs that we do around leading for empathy and inclusion in business that we've done at places like RBC is one of the things we do is really help all genders get in touch with their own experiences of exclusion. So one of the most powerful things we find for men is to get connected to their own experiences of exclusion in their lives, even if they weren't around gender, because that grows our empathic response to the exclusionary experiences of others, right? And so a part of this is all of us have experienced exclusion. And when we connect with that experience of exclusion and the impact that that has on us, then we become more empathic, right? So there's a journey that we're all on. Uh, To your question, I I don't see any change in the trajectory right now of businesses' interest in equity and inclusion. If anything, it's still like a hockey stick going up. I think it's one of the most important topics I hear CEOs and C-suite leaders and boards talk about. Uh, and certainly in all the organizations that we work with, I feel it's still ascending. And it was clear in our focus groups with the C-suite leaders that both male and female leaders see this at the top of their agenda. I think the more interesting question maybe, you know, not, not as your question wasn't interesting, but given that answer, what becomes interesting is how do we accelerate it? How do we turn that interest into something that will translate into even more gains? And I think our study points to some things there. First, um, uh, all our respondents said the senior leaders are absolutely critical. They need to send powerful messages about what's acceptable and what isn't. They need to powerfully uh, create space for those voices that have not historically been there. Uh, I think of one female leader who in our focus groups who said she's the only female on the C-suite and happens to also be the only millennial. And she said one of the most powerful things is the male CEO will often ask her her opinion first in a meeting. And she said, but he never says, now let's hear from the young people. Let's hear from the women. He just does it, right? Uh, The second thing uh, is that uh, about 80% of the respondents said their workplaces in Canada and the United States have initiatives aimed at creating more inclusion and equity. And uh, people said almost all those initiatives are working, but they said the initiatives that are working the best are the ones that are built on trying to help people hear and understand each other. 
rather than, you know, we're going to teach you to be more inclusive. We're going to create opportunities for us to hear from each other, to dialogue, to hear about how your experience as a woman or a person of color or as a man or as a uh, non, you know, heterosexual, heteronormative person are experienced differently as a young person, an older person. So we really believe that dialogue-based programs are the most powerful ones where people can actually listen and speak rather than just be talked at. And I think our study powerfully points that these kind of initiatives have a bigger impact than ones that are more oriented to, you know, we're going to tell you the truth and how you need to be different. Those are working too, by the way, but not as well as these more dialogue-based efforts. Those are really great examples. Thank you for sharing those. Um, in the final few minutes we have left, a couple of closing questions and Nikki, I'll put this next one to you. I mean, the theme of the report and our conversation is that thankfully more people recognize the need to prioritize EDI initiatives. But what would you say for leaders who are looking at, you know, how we move beyond having conversations into meaningful action around not just establishing diversity, which is important, but going the extra step to ensuring that they have a really inclusive workplace and one that fosters meaningful belonging? That's a great question. You know, I think one of the things that um, these movements have brought to the surface is the pain that's been in sort of place, the suffering that that's happened as a result of harm that's come in place. So I think what we're doing now is, is understanding that. Um, and we're trying to find ways of, like I mentioned, you know, that animosity piece, how do we reduce that? How do we try to create places where there is safety? And I think that's one of the core pieces here. And we hear a lot about psychological safety. What does that actually mean? And how does that translate for workplaces? And John's mentioned a little bit about that in terms of the employee resource groups, the, the you know, sort of workplace bias training, all of that. But really, what are the, what are the dialogue and, and conversations that we're having around, well, how did this come to be? And how can we actually create opportunities for this not to happen again? How can we learn from our mistakes. We don't want to pretend like it didn't happen, right? How can we actually move from that? And part of that is, is acknowledging the, the truth of it, which will create the trust, and then creating some, some honestly, some rec reconciliation so that we can move forward. Yeah, and I guess the only thing I would add to that is uh, obviously two things stand out to me, Haley. One is the role of senior leaders is critical. You know, diversity is about making sure the table is representative, right? That's the first step. But we know that diversity without inclusion, which is, you know, so, you know, diversity is who's at the table. Inclusion is who really feels a part of the circle and feels that they really are included in that circle. Uh, and, and that's another level of work. So it's one thing to get a diverse team at the table. You really have to work at how do we create inclusion. The second thing is... Um, you know, uh, you know, we have a saying in our work, privilege is invisible to those who have it. And exclusion is invisible to those who haven't experienced it. So how do we create an environment we can understand our different experiences in a dialogue-based way? And finally, we feel men have their own journey they have to go on. And one of the pieces of research that's really fascinating is that when you get men together talking with each other, 
about the journey they have to take to be more inclusive, some powerful things happen. We did work like that with Heineken in Mexico, where the men got together in a structured dialogue about their own experiences about a more diverse work, workplace and how do we need to change? And it had really powerful results. And in our survey, the last piece of data that's interesting, we asked all genders, how important is it for men to have programs aimed specifically at helping them take their own journey around being more inclusive? Seven of 10 women said it was very important and six in 10 men said it was very important and yet almost no organizations have programs specifically aimed at men taking their own journey to become more inclusive and to figure out how to be different in this diverse environment. So we think that's uncharted territory that organizations need to explore. And if I can just add one point to that, it's really about shifting the burden of responsibility and care. Often that rests on marginalized communities, on women and people from, from different gendered identities. And, and now we're talking about how can we actually get people in places of privilege to do the work? And, and I think that's really critical to, to real change. Absolutely. I think this is um, a perfect chance to kind of look at our last question in terms of the engagement of men, right? And like you said, you know, that was, um, that's a barrier, it's a challenge, but it's also a very important opportunity to harness. And so as our final question, um, and Donald, start with you, how do you believe engaging men in useful ways um, where they do feel included, but they also are part of the sort of deconstructing of patriarchal systems that perpetuate these issues? How do we mobilize? How do we support men to do this work? And how do we ensure that that continues for the long haul? Yeah, so great question. And so one of the things that we say, you know, over the last few years, there's been a lot of emphasis on men need to listen more. They need to be quiet and listen. And it is true. Men need to listen to the experiences of others, especially white men and, and whoever been in the, in the center of the circle, as we like to say. One of the things we've talked less about is men also need to talk. Now, men talk all the time, but when they talk in unstructured ways, men often reinforce misogynistic, non-inclusive behaviors. And one of the most interesting things in our study is we found that most men believe that other men are more misogynistic and less interested in being inclusive than they see themselves. So what that means is that men are less likely to challenge each other because they think that other guy doesn't want me to do that. And I remember in one of our focus groups, we asked about challenging misogynistic behavior, sexual jokes, et cetera. And one man said, well, it's mostly gone underground, you know, it still happens, but once in a while a guy will say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. And this young leader said something I'll never forget. He said, but you don't want to be that guy. And what that told me was most men want to be different, but they think other men don't want to be different. And so one of the things we found is when you get men together talking about this, they begin to challenge each other. They begin to think, as Nikki said, about what's my role in bringing people into the circle rather than just having them have to break into the circle, right? And so I really believe that men are on their own journey around this, and yet no one's helping them in a structured way have those conversations. 
And so men do need to listen, but we also need to create opportunities for them to talk in a way that they will learn from each other and challenge each other and think about how they can be different. And I, again, I think that's important uncharted territory that we're trying to explore. And we find when men do that, that powerful things happen because men talk all the time, but they don't talk about the things we need them to talk about unless you structure it. I think that's a very powerful and thought-provoking place to leave off on. It's become clear to me we'll have to have you both back to continue the conversation because half an hour is just not enough. But John, Nikki, thank you both so much for taking the time. Great. We'll come back anytime. <laughs> thank you so much for having us. It's such a pleasure, Haley and Chantel. Great having you both. Joining us today, Dr. John Izzo, founder of Blueprint, and Nikki Dollywall, Blueprint's Director of Engagement and Partnerships. The report we've been discussing is leading in the wake of Me Too and Black Lives Matter. I encourage you to check it out. You can find it at blueprint.ngo. Chantelle Krish, CEO of KidSafe, joined me as a co-host. Always great to have her. And you've been listening to EDI on BIV. You can find other episodes of our show at biv.com audio. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week.